Welcome to Biology for Bastards, teaching biology in the most profane way you've ever seen or heard. I'm your host, John Doty. Thanks for listening. Well, bastards, we made it. We are finally on the fucking cool shit. We're talking evolution. We are now on the evolution. My favorite stuff. Um, it's just going to be amazing. I've got a coffee because I'm fucking exhausted. I've got a beer because I'm fucking excited. It's just going to be amazing. Um, this season, we've gone through the AB, AP Biology curriculum. And we are all the way on Chapter 22, which is Darwin. Chuck D. Not the Chuck D from Run DMC, but the other Chuck D. The original Chucky D. Um, so let's just... Let's do this. Let's do this shit. I'm so fucking excited. Holy shit. I can't contain my... Okay, see? I'm just so excited I can't even get started. Let's do this. So, Descent with Modification. Okay, that's Darwin's shit. Um, basically, the idea is that evolution is the change over time in the genetic composition of a population. So it's not just change. And it's not just change over time. It's a specific thing that's changing that we're going to get into in a couple different ways in a couple different chapters. But when we talk evolution, we are talking about the evolution of a population. And while we talk about Darwin, he was definitely not the first one to suggest that things change. And he definitely wasn't the last one. Um, we just talk about him because he was the first one who really got it right. Because um, we can go all the way back to Aristotle back in like 300 and something BC. And he had this whole like, I don't even know how to fucking pronounce it, Scala Naturae or something. The, you know, natural scale. Um, just saying that life forms were arranged on this kind of ladder type thing. Where the simple things were at the bottom, the more complex things were at the top. And he kind of went through that. And a lot of that came... Um, just from simple observations and you know that led to some creationism and the Old Testament shit going on saying the earth was like 6,000 years old all the species were designed by God and they've been perfect ever since they were first created um, that leads to some intelligent design stuff where it's not necessarily God it's some designer who designed everything um then we jump all the way ahead to the 1700s and we have Linnaeus. Now you you might know Linnaeus um, if you know anything about Linnaean taxonomy or just taxonomy in general. Because he's the guy who came up with the whole binomial nomenclature system that we use for naming organisms today. It was the, you know, King Philip came over for good whatever you know, the high school way of saying it, if you're being nice and polite, is the high, um, dear King Philip came over for good spaghetti. I always learned it as King Philip came over for good sex, um, which, you know, spaghetti's good and all, but whatever King Philip's into, that's his call. But no matter what dear King Philip came over for, that stands for our domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Um, domains, there's only three of them. It's basically 
Are you a bacteria? Are you this thing called an archaea? Or are you eukaryote? Everything with a nucleus is in the same fucking domain. That's how broad these are. And then as you move through kingdom, phylum, class, all that shit, um, you get a little more specific. So when you get down to the genus and the species, there's only one. There's one type of organism that is a species. Okay, and when Linnaeus was doing his stuff, like I said, back in the 1700s, he was basing it off of morphology and anatomy. So just physical um, structures. Now this brings us to... I'm guessing he was French. I don't really give a shit, but I'm going to say it because I think his name is pronounced Cuvier. Um, George Cuvier doing his shit um, towards the tail end of Linnaeus's life. He was a paleontologist. Cuvier was. And he focused on this idea called, and I always fuck this word up, catastrophism. Catastrophism? Something like that. It's like catastrophe, but with ism at the end. Catastrophism. Um, and what that said, whatever that fuck that C word is pronounced, um, was that catastrophes destroyed a lot of living species, and then they were the area was repopulated by immigrant species. So he actually was an opponent of evolution, just saying that the reason we don't see the animals that we're finding these fossils of is because there's catastrophe that killed them all off. And then what we have left, what we have presently, are the survivors of those catastrophes. So kind of, you know... Even though he opposed evolution, he was right about some stuff, about the catastrophes, killing off a lot of living species, and then um, surviving species repopulating it. But he did not believe that the species changed over time. That they, He believed that they were fixed, and he believed that the ones that, we had, that they had around at the time were the survivors of all the catastrophes, exactly as they were during the catastrophe. So... This brings us to two geologists, um, James Hutton and Charles Lyell. You often talk about them kind of hand in hand because their work was based off of each other's. Um, Lyell was born the year Hutton died, but they piggyback Lyell piggybacked off of Hutton's work. So Hutton was known for the idea of gradualism. And what gradualism says is that the geological processes happen very slowly and very continuously, but that changes the geology. So that these processes that we see happened over this long, gradual time, and that's why it's called gradualism. And it's often talked about in the same breath as Lyell's work with uniformitarianism because oh fuck I think I got those backwards uniform fuck anyways we're really just trying to get to Darwin anyways um, uniformitarianism um, says that those processes that are working very gradually, very slowly, um, work the same way over time and have been constant for a very long time, which leads to Earth being very old. No, I didn't get it fucking backwards. I knew what I was talking about. 
uniformitarianism is Lyell, Hutton is gradualism, but Hutton is also known for this idea of deep time. That's why I was fucking confused, because I didn't have that written down. Oh shit. My bad. But, anyways, they go hand in hand. So, Hutton was the one who said deep time was a thing, that the Earth was more than 6,000 years old. He was saying it was millions of years old. We now know it's billions, with a B, but at his time, even being millions of years old was a huge change from what everybody was thinking. And it was that really long time that allowed the gradualism or the ideas of gradualism, the ideas of uniformitarianism, that things remain the same um, over time and they just have been working forever to have these big geological changes like the Grand Canyon slowly being carved out by the Colorado River by tiny earthquakes uprooting giant patches of the ground you see the layers of the rocks on the side like the countryside because I think James Hutton was Scottish and you saw these geological structures on walks along the shore and that's kind of what gave him his idea but this is important because it really kind of laid the groundwork that you had this really long time that these slow and subtle changes that you may not be able to notice in your lifetime or you could barely notice it gave it enough time for those differences to pile up and have big drastic dramatic changes to the environment and this brings us to one of the cooler names Jean-Baptiste Lamarck definitely was French um, he looks really funny if you look up a picture of him he is funny looking as shit um, but he is always going to be known for being wrong he published his own theory of evolution in 1809 and he was all about the inheritance of acquired characteristics and kind of the policy of use and disuse he was all about uh, use it or lose it if you use part of the body it would become bigger it could become stronger it would get passed on to your kids and your kids would be bigger and stronger as a result and the classic example of that is of the, of the giraffe Lamarck said that the giraffe started off as this horse looking thing and it would stretch its neck to reach up into the trees to get the leaves and its neck would get a little bit longer its children then would be born with a slightly longer neck than the parent and if the children stretch their necks even further their children would be born with even longer necks and enough generations go by you take a horse and turn it into a fucking giraffe this is obviously wrong but what it did he saw that organisms were changing over time and he proposed an explanation that was wrong but it got people thinking it got people looking into the idea of life not being fixed of life being able to change and then the last person before we get to Darwin is this British economist by the name of Thomas Malthus and he was all about this kind of struggle for existence where he was living in London during the Industrial Revolution or leading up to it and he noticed that as things were changing there were more human babies than there were deaths for the first time like ever 
and as the population got more and more crowded, um, there was going to be an increase in war, an increase in famine, an increase in disease, all this stuff that was going to limit the population somehow. So that led to his idea of this struggle for existence, that there was going to be a fight to survive as we had all these people being born and not necessarily dying off as they traditionally did. And then that brings us to Charles fucking Darwin. Ugh, Chuck D, my boy. I love this dude. Um, he was a weird-ass fellow, though. Married his cousin. Fun fact. Um, had some kids with his cousin, but that's okay. Um, Darwin was born in 1809, like February. I don't know the exact date. I should, but it's in February. And he was an English naturalist. He came from a very well-respected family. Um, he was going to be a doctor, but he dropped out of med school because he could not stand blood. And if you were trying to practice medicine in the early 1800s, it was pretty much all blood. You were just like sawing body parts off for fun or whatever they did back in the day. But in 1831, when he was only 22, so think of that, 22, he was asked to be the naturalist for the ship, the HMS Beagle. So I think it was Captain Smith, Captain Cook, one of those two, one of those super generic ass names, um, needed a buddy because they couldn't socialize with the crew and this was going to be a five-year trip so they needed someone of equal status to the captain to tag along and darwin was just going through life with no plan at this point so he was invited to be the ship's naturalist and it was up to him to collect animal specimens plant specimens bones fossils basically look at nature and shit and write it down that was his job so they were going to sail around the world with the main task of mapping the South American coast and then kind of circling back around and come home. And in doing this, they had made a very important stop off the west coast of South America, this archipelago of islands that you may know as the Galapagos Islands. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, I should actually put I can edit shit and put sound effects in. That would have been a perfect place for the dun-dun-dun. I'm probably not going to put that in, though. So just imagine I did. Got to brush up on my editing skills. Maybe that's something for season two, which is like 12 episodes away or something. Who the fuck knows? But the Galapagos Islands, famous for their tortoises with all the different-looking shells, Famous for the finches, where the birds were all basically the same, but their beaks were different sizes and different shapes and everything. So, lots of shit went down on these islands. Lots of information collected. They came back. So, there's all this shit that I'm just kind of blasting through there. He went to the Galapagos, saw a bunch of shit, took a bunch of notes, took a bunch of tortoises and ate them. Um, apparently, they were delicious. And went back to London. Or just England. I don't know if it was actually London. He went back to England. And he started looking at stuff. And he started thinking. And he started doing other research. And he started thinking. And he did more research. And he did more thinking. And he did more research. And he did more thinking. And it was 30 years later. 
after he got back. So we're talking like 56-ish, 1856 that is, that he finally decided he was going to publish some of his findings. And really the only reason he did was because this other guy named Alfred Russell Wallace came up with the idea of natural selection totally independently of Darwin and actually published a paper on it first. Now that's a big deal. So not many people know about Wallace, um, but he was kind of more of the working class boy where Darwin was like the rich kid. And Wallace was working in Malaysia, got malaria, and in one of his fever dreams came up with the idea of natural selection. But being, you know, British in the mid-1800s, they were writing letters back and forth, Wallace and Darwin, and they decided that in 1859 they were going to publish some more complete works. So Wallace, Wallace published something, and that year, 1859, is where... Charles Darwin published his famous book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Long ass fucking title. If you've ever tried to read the origin of species, that's pretty much how the book is. There are entire paragraphs that are like one sentence and have like 20 fucking commas in it. It's a terrible read. It's very interesting. But it's like if Charles Dickens wrote a biology textbook. It's terrible. It's just that weird way of writing um, that I'm not a fan of. But the big thing about the origin of species um, was that he introduced this idea of natural selection, which we'll get to. Um, and in the first few versions of it, he didn't use the word evolution. He used descent with modification, that things had descended with change over time. And at the heart of the idea of natural selection was the idea of these adaptations. Now these adaptations were beneficial differences or beneficial changes in an organism that improved its ability to survive and reproduce. So whatever it was that increased the likelihood of making some babies that was an adaptation and it was an overproduction of offspring that led to a competition that turned some of those changes into adaptations because if there wasn't this overproduction of offspring if it wasn't if how can I say that if fewer individuals were being born than the environment can support, everybody could survive and nothing would happen. Everyone would be equally, you know, able to survive. But if there were a hundred offspring born and only 50 could live, now you've got to figure out which 50 get to stick around. So that kind of leads to the idea of natural selection, where um, nature you know, to personify it, is deciding what works best. And in reality, it's not deciding what works best, it's just deciding what doesn't work. Saying, this is a fucking disaster, get rid of it. Anything else is fine. Just get rid of this shit. Um, and it works on an individual basis. We'll get into differentiating individuals versus populations and all that shit later. Um, but 
that's kind of natural selection um, in a very brief introduction. And it was named natural selection because it was very similar to this process um, of artificial selection, which breeders have been using for a very long time. And in artificial selection, man, woman, breeder, whomever, um, humans are deciding what is best, what traits do they want. So they're selectively breeding and inbreeding organisms to get whatever outcome was desired, whether it was bigger fruit or a faster horse or a funny looking pigeon. And that was artificial selection. And Darwin, being a rich kid, being a smart guy, realized if people were able to get some weird-ass-looking animals within their lifetime easily, then why could nature not do it, given how long nature had to work on stuff? So that kind of led him to his idea of natural selection, where um, there's a couple main ideas behind it, that there is that competition for limited resources, because not everyone can survive, more born than can survive. That's the struggle for existence that he kind of um, took from the ideas of Malthus. There's this idea of evolutionary fitness, which is just individuals with phenotypes. You remember what phenotypes are, just kind of physical features, how genes are put in action and all that shit. Um, individuals with more favorable phenotypes are going to be more likely to survive, therefore more likely to have more offspring, and therefore, therefore, I don't know if you, there's another word for using therefore again, but they are going to pass traits to the future generations more than those who are less fit. And um, the other thing, those phenotypes are suited to an environment. Okay, so the environment is a big driving factor behind everything. And then lastly, the idea that populations evolve and individuals don't. So those are kind of the main ideas behind natural selection, behind what Darwin said. So I've thought about splitting this into two episodes, but I decided against it because we're now going to change gears ever so slightly. That was kind of the history behind evolution, the history behind Darwin, those who laid the foundation and just kind of very, very, very simply what the fuck natural selection was. So now we're getting into evidence. So it's kind of a little change of gears. And I just realized that if I did split this into two episodes, the second part would be really quick. And we've had a couple really short episodes recently. So I wanted to give you a good, good hearty one. Um... I just thought of something. Hardy is funny because we're going to talk about the Hardy-Weinberg equation here soon. Um, not today, but Hardy. Huh, funny. So, evidence for evolution. Um, I'm not going to go back and review the main ideas of natural selection because I just said what the fuck they were. Um, but if you're following along with the PowerPoint, which is on our website, www.biologyforbastards.com, um, it has a recap right there, but we're going to talk about four main groups, um, or categories of evidence supporting evolution by natural selection. Um, some direct observations, 
the fossil record, homology, and biogeography. Those are the main four groups that we're going to talk about. So the direct observations are just seeing shit happen in nature that is evolution. And um, there's a bunch. It's like, you know, becoming resistant, insects becoming resistant to pesticides or antibiotic resistance and bacteria like the rise of MRSA and VRSA and all that stuff due to the over um, prescription of antibiotics. But I want to talk about the peppered moth a little bit more detail because that was really the first case where natural selection was seen in action. So the peppered moth was this moth, or is this moth, that lived in England around the time of Darwin. And there were two different morphs, two different types. There was a pretty much totally black one, and then one that was white with a bunch of black, sp bunch of black splotches on it. And that's why it was called the peppered moth, because it was peppered looking. And pre-industrial revolution, over 90% of the peppered moth population was the white peppered morph. So mostly white. And it looked like lichen on the bark of trees. So lichen's that weird grayish green stuff that grows on trunks. Um, so it was camouflaged. It blended in with the trees. But as the Industrial Revolution went on, and as the pollution increased in and around the cities, those morphs started to disappear, and the black morph became more and more common. So that in some places, the white peppered morph was almost completely replaced by the black one in a very short time. So this was just showing that there was this driving factor of the environment that was eliminating the white peppered ones and selecting four and increasing the commonality of the entire black morphs. So that's kind of um, some of the earliest direct observations for evolution. Now, talking about fossils, everybody knows what the fuck a fossil is. Okay, so I'm not gonna define that, but they are found in sedimentary rock and what fossils are used for is to essentially connect dots where you can see the either loss or the formation of structures through geologic time by looking at how fossils have changed um, over time, I guess. Kind of lost my train of thought there. But you get the point. You can track things changing over time by looking at fossils of organisms that have it. And what people are kind of looking for are the transitional forms. So kind of like the missing link, which you're never going to find the missing link because the missing link is already there. Like it's not a sudden change that's right between two things. It's a bunch of little images in between that slowly transition from one to the next. Okay, so it's like a, it's a flip book or an animation where you need all these little changes for the picture to make sense. So that's kind of fossils. Fossils are pretty fucking straightforward. Um, 
So the third one is kind of the cool one, homology. And this is where you can have characteristics that have this underlying similarity, even though the functions might be totally different. So this shit's kind of like homologous structures where you have the same anatomy, um, even if the use is totally different. So like your arm and a cat's leg and a whale's flipper and a bat's wing, it's all the same shit. If you look at the shoulder to the elbow, it's one bone. If you look from the elbow to the wrist, it's two bones. If you look at the wrist, it's a bunch of tiny little shit. And you got the fingers at the end, a bunch of skinny little bones. Um, so there's the book Urine or Fish by Dr. Neil Shubin at University of Chicago. Um, he says something along the lines of you have this one stick, two stick, bunch of blobs, bunch of sticks um, structure for tetrapods or things with four limbs. But that's homologous structures where it's the same structure even though the function might be totally different. Then we have um, embryonic homologies Whereas you watch things develop from an embryological standpoint, you can see um, a lot of similarities. And the more closely related the two organisms are, the longer embryologically that they look the same or similar. Um, and you kind of go through your evolutionary history through embryology. So there's a point in time where human embryos, you know, have a tail, we have gills, we have all this shit. And there's some people whose gills don't um, close up all the way. I know it's fucking crazy as shit. Um, but it forms this weird little hole kind of right where the ear attaches to the head and it's called a preauricular pit or a preauricular sinus. Um, and it just looks like somebody pierced the side of their head right by their ear um, and took it out. That's what it looks like to me at least. But that is a remnant of the gills from your embryological development. That's kind of fucking cool. And then another piece of homology are vestigial structures. So all a vestigial structure is, is a structure that used to serve a purpose in an ancient organ or in an ancestor that doesn't have a purpose anymore. So whales have leg bones that have shriveled up um, and are inside the body. Snakes have vestigial scales where their legs used to be. Um... It used to be believed that the appendix was a vestigial structure, but that's that's changing. Um, they're now thinking that the appendix has something to do with repopulating your microbiome after you've been really sick. So that's kind of fucking cool. But that's a totally different story for a totally different day. Um, but the reason vestigial structures stick around is they have been selected against to the point where what remains no longer has an impact on fitness. So like with whales... Having external legs would be bad, but once the legs shrivel up and go inside the body and you still have the streamlined shape on the outside, it doesn't matter if you've got tiny ass leg bones or big ass leg bones as long as they're on the inside and don't stick out. So they stick around, they don't help, they don't hurt, they're just kind of leftovers. So those are vestigial structures. And then the last kind of um, homology piece of evidence um, are molecular homologies. So you can have homologous molecules. So things like how 
the genetic code and DNA and transcription and translation all works the same fucking way across all different life forms. That's a molecular homology. Um, let's see. So in the slides that are up on the website, talks about um, convergent evolution where you can get um, similar looking organisms even though they're distant related, distantly related. So it's the opposite of homologous structures. They're called analogous structures. And basically it's just things being exposed to a similar environment. You solve the problem the same way. So not going to spend too much time on that because we're talking about evidence for evolution in analogous structures really don't show um, an evolutionary history. It just shows that they live in a similar environment. Um, but the last piece of ev evidence is biogeography, which you could probably figure out what the fuck that means because geography is, you know, where shit is. And then bio is life. So it's where life is. Okay, so it's the geographic distribution of a species if we want to be all fancy and technical. And when you have species in a given area, they tend to be very similar. So, you know, you have two different types of squirrels in an area. They're going to be pretty fucking close to each other. Um, and then as you get farther apart geographically, things become more and more different. And this has something to do with continental drift, which I know you all know from like middle school. Um, that's just where, you know, Pangea, all the continents were together and then they weren't. Um, so what happens is you have species living in an area, then it drifts apart. And as they're separated, there's more time for differences to pile up. So things become different. So, um, the last thing is the idea of an endemic species. And all that means is that it's found just in one place. So it's endemic to an area. So like the marine iguanas of the Galapagos are endemic to the Galapagos. That's the only place you can find marine iguanas is in the Galapagos Islands. So there's a bunch of pictures on the slides on the website but you can look at the pictures yourself and figure that out. And I'm going to wrap it up now. So that was our introduction to evolution. And it's my favorite shit ever. And I'm so glad we're finally here. It also means that we're approaching the end of the season. We've only got nine episodes left after this shit. And we're at like episode 24, 25 right now. So we only have nine left. And they're all about evolution and it's the best because even the ecology shit which is like the last five episodes basically it's evolution because they go hand in hand so I'm just so fucking excited that we're finally here we got through all the boring shit and we get to talk about the cool stuff now um it's just my favorite so just kind of a preview of things to come I'm probably gonna have longer episodes this stuff just because i'm so fucking excited i'll try to keep from rambling but on that note um keep spreading the word we're doing awesome i, I love you guys it's great not gonna get sappy i got sappy like last time or something but um you know rate review subscribe tell everybody you know 
Um, go check out the website, www.biologyforbastards.com. Um, you know, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at Bio for Bastards on all three of those. I'll be honest, Twitter's still the best one, the one that I use the most. I'm just starting to use Facebook and Instagram and figure them out. So if you really want to get a hold of me, get a hold of the show, there is a contact the show form on the website, or you can get on Twitter and send me something. I'll be most likely to reply there. Um, I don't even know how to reply on the other ones yet. So do that. Um, our intro and outro music is a song song feeling good by purple planet music and um that's about it so until next time thanks for listening So you may have just heard an ad, but I can't end with an ad. So just wanted to say, follow us on Twitter at Bio4Bastards. Um, our intro and outro music is Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, tell everybody you know about it. And again, thanks for listening.